0: You know, did you notice we finished up uh, the Minor Prophets this morning? Did you notice that? And some of you are probably wondering, what's next, Pastor Sandy? Well, you'll just have to come back and see. No, uh, next week we're going to do a study for Valentine's Day. And then the following week we're going to begin a series of messages in First Peter we're going to work our way through 1 Peter over a period of a couple of months. So that should be a lot of fun. We're going to call our, our series of messages, It's Only a Test. <laughs> Life, it's only a test. Well, John chapter 12 is where we are tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonderful treasures in, in scripture. And we pray tonight, Lord, that as we uh, give ourselves to the study of your word, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. We pray it in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Put your best foot forward is an old English phrase. It was first used in 1613. It means to embark on a journey or a task with purpose and gusto. Put your best foot forward. Well, Jesus is headed to the cross And in John 12 and 13, he puts his best foot forward. He heads to Jerusalem for his last Passover. And it's interesting that our chapters tonight start and finish with feet. They begin with a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with an expensive perfume. And they end when Jesus takes a bowl and a towel to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is about to save the world. And he puts his best foot forward. Beginning in verse 1, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And what a joyous reunion that was. Jesus and Lazarus are now reunited. What a conversation. Can you imagine that conversation? Well, there they made him a supper, and Martha served. Wouldn't you know it? Martha busy in the kitchen as always. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, spikenard was a perfumed oil that was imported from India. It was very expensive, worth probably a year's wages. It may have constituted Mary's entire life savings. Well, she took the oil and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. As a matter of fact, the church down through the centuries has been filled with the fragrance of this oil and Mary's incredible act of worship. You know, Jesus had brought back her brother from the dead. Now, no expense is too extravagant to show Jesus just how much she loves him and adores him. You know, I think nowhere in Scripture do we find an act that better epitomizes the nature of true worship than right here. You know, no one required Mary to pour out this oil on Jesus. And worship is always born out of love. It's never compulsory. It's always out of love. It's never out of legalism. True worship is not so much ritualistic or religious as it is romantic. In other words, it flows from the heart. And Mary's expression here was the overflow of an exuberant heart. We're told then one of his disciples, oh boy, this guy, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You know, his noble-sounding argument was really just a smokescreen. We're told, for this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. He was skimming off the top, stealing out of God's wallet. Can you imagine? Judas wasn't worried about the poor. He was only worried about his own purse. It's interesting that Judas, apparently, was the treasurer of the Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association. And it's a good thing that he was never audited. It would have been a scandal. Judas had been robbing from the petty cash. He had been depositing the checks but taking the money, the cash, out of the offering. It was terrible. Judas was pilfering, but his excuse, mind you, was pragmatism. Oh, What about the enormous needs in the world, was his argument. Let's be practical here. There are missions and there's soup kitchens and there's homes for unwed mothers and there's political action committees that desperately need our support. Hey, why waste money on worship? Understand this. This is so important. Worship is never practical. It's always spiritual. Worship is not designed to satisfy or benefit human beings. Worship is an attempt by human beings to bless the heart of God. It makes worship unselfish and non-utilitarian and relational in nature. Worship is like buying a dozen red roses for your wife. Hopefully some of you guys are going to do that this coming week. Buy a few roses for the little lady. Worship is like buying roses for your wife. Practically speaking, Roses are a complete waste of money. You know that. Flowers are just a terrible waste of money. They bloom for a few days, but then they shrivel up. They serve no functional purpose. They're just a complete waste of money, practically speaking. But relationally speaking, oh my, they're a valuable gesture to the person you love. And they're worth every single penny that you pay for that bouquet. You see, flowers are only appreciated by lovers. And so it is with worship. Obviously, Judas was not a lover of God. Therefore, worship meant nothing to him. It's ironic. The name Judas means praise. But Judas knew nothing of real praise and real worship. If he had, he would have never objected to Mary's extravagance. Well, verse 7 tells us, But Jesus said, Let her alone... She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. You know, perfumes were placed on deteriorating corpses in order to mask the odors. But Mary believed that Jesus' body would not rot. She believed in his resurrection. And so she anointed him before his burial. What a great statement of faith. It's interesting, Mary of Bethany was not among the women who came to the tomb on Easter Sunday. And why? It's because she had already anointed Jesus' body. We're told now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus apparently had become quite a celebrity. It's interesting. When you look closely at these three family members, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you find the three ingredients of Christian discipleship. You know, Martha, she was known for what? For her work. She was always in the kitchen. And, and working for the Lord is a part of Christian discipleship. Mary was known, oh, we've just seen it, for her worship, her extravagant Love for Jesus and her willing to express it. And, of course, worship is a part of Christian discipleship. And then Lazarus, he apparently was known for his witness. Here people are coming out to see him. Hey, work, worship, and witness need to be our three priorities as Christians. Well, verse 10 uncovers a scheme. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. I mean, Lazarus was such an impressive witness that he ended up on the priestly hit list. I don't know why they, were, why they weren't afraid to kill Lazarus. I would imagine that Lazarus had already proven the fact he doesn't stay dead long. So why in the world would they wanted to kill him? I'm sure I would have been afraid to kill him. Jesus might resurrect him again. It's it's interesting. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke 16 of the rich man and the beggar? You remember what the beggar's name was? Lazarus, right? Different Lazarus, but same name. The rich man died and went to hell. The beggar went to paradise. The rich man, remember, asked Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth and to let him witness to his brothers. Lest they come to this place of torment. And you remember how Abraham responded. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich guy, he persisted. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Note Abraham's reply. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through the one rise from the dead. Now here, ironically... A man named Lazarus does rise from the dead. And Abraham was right. Rather than listen to him, the Jews try to kill him. Verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast. And during the Passover, of course, the city of Jerusalem, man, it was swarming with visitors. A great multitude indeed. Indeed. The permanent population of Jerusalem at the time was about 80,000. But in, during Passover, it would swell to 250,000, sometimes half a million. Now when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? It means save now. It was a political state. The palm branches were also symbols of Israel, national symbols. They spoke of Jewish patriotism and independence. The Jews turned Jesus' entry into Jerusalem into a political rally. They wanted salvation from Roman rule, not freedom from sin and from self. And then they cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. A quote from Psalm 118, a Messianic psalm. They were looking for a political deliverer, not a spiritual savior. Well, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he said on it, as it is written, and here John quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah had predicted that Messiah would come to the nation riding on a burrow. You know, usually Jesus steered away from the spotlight. It's interesting, this was the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated. was his triumphant entry. And he did so to fulfill scripture. Well, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, in other words, after his crucifixion, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb... And raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It was the resurrection of Lazarus just days earlier that evidently had fueled these large crowds and had produced such an enormous reception for Jesus. Verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You know, Philip was the only disciple with a Greek name. Thus, these Greek inquirers they chose Philip because they thought that he might show their, his fellow countrymen, you know, some, uh, some favoritism. Philip then came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, we're not told if Jesus actually spoke to these Greeks, only that he said to Andrew and Philip, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Have you ever heard the expression, 15 minutes of fame? Ever heard that expression? You know, at some point, everybody gets their brief time in the spotlight, their 15 minutes of fame. Reminds me of August the 19th, 1951. Three foot, seven inch, a midget, a man named Eddie Goodell had his 15 minutes of fame. The St. Louis Browns were playing the Detroit Tigers in a Major League Baseball game. When Goodell, wearing number one-eighth came out of the dugout to pinch hit for the Browns. It was a publicity stunt. But since his strike zone was only 18 inches, he walked on four pitches. After the incident, the American League barred midgets from baseball. And yet his 15 minutes of fame earned Goodell a place in baseball annals. Well, here Jesus announces that his moment of glory has finally come. You know, it sounds strange to think of Jesus having one moment of glory, just 15 minutes in the spotlight. When you think about it, his life was full of glory. What about on the mountain, when he was transfigured in the bright light of his eternal splendor? On and on we could go. The life of Christ was glorious from start to finish. And yet here Jesus says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In his mind, his moment of glory had finally arrived. And what monumental event was he referring to? What would this have included? A few lightning bolts? Some serious thunderclaps? No, what did Jesus view as his moment of glory? How about a wooden cross? Jesus' crucifixion was his glorification. You see, the culmination of his coming, Jesus' ultimate act of obedience, the brightest display of his character, his greatest fulfillment of the divine will occurred during those six hours that Jesus spent hanging on a Roman cross. This was his moment of glory. And Jesus says, it's finally come. Verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Plant a kernel of wheat and the moisture in the soil softens its shell. It releases its seed. The seed germinates and begins to sprout toward the sunshine. Here's the point. The mystery of life involves death. That seed first has to die. When the kernel of wheat dies, it ceases being a kernel and it becomes a harvest of wheat. Likewise, when we die to our selfish ways, that's when we begin to bless others. That's when we become a part of the harvest that God has ordained. And nowhere is this principle of life from death more evident than at the cross of Jesus. Jesus' death produced a harvest of millions and millions of believers. He was the single grain that fell to the ground and now his death has produced a worldwide harvest. Here he mentions the mystery of life and death. And this principle of life and death, it applies to us. For he says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Real living doesn't start until you're first willing to die to your selfishness. Well, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus says, what, what should I say now? You know, I'm troubled. I know where I'm headed. But should I try to... Ask for God's reprieve? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Oh no. Jesus said, No, that's not what I should say. I came into the world. My purpose was to come to this hour. Jesus was putting his best foot forward, and it wasn't a reluctant foot. Jesus was born to die. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Remember, the magi at his birth gave him a gift of myrrh. What was myrrh? It was a burial spice. Imagine getting a bottle of formaldehyde at your baby shower. I mean, Jesus was born with his death in mind. His journey led to the foot of the cross. He's not about to try to get out of it now. He's not about to try to cop out at this point. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Apparently, it was an audible voice. Therefore, the people who stood by, they heard it. They heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, there were two reasons why a gory cross was Jesus' moment of glory. First, on the cross, Satan was defeated. You see, Satan didn't want Jesus to be crucified. He did all that he could to keep Jesus off of the cross. You remember earlier when Satan tempted Jesus. You remember what he did? He promised him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus would have gotten the kingdoms of the world anyway. But he would have gotten them through the cross. Satan's promise was I'll give you the kingdoms of the world without going to the cross. All you have to do is bow down to me now. And you can have the kingdoms of the world. Satan wanted to keep him off the cross. I believe the reason Satan used Judas to betray his Lord, the reason he wanted to take Peter and the disciples and sift them as wheat was because he wanted to discourage Jesus from going to the cross. Remember, Jesus was hurt by the very people that he came to save. He was betrayed and denied by the people he would go to the cross for. Satan hoped the pain of that rejection would have caused Jesus to abort his mission, but it didn't. Of course, his strategy didn't work. Jesus went to the cross and judged Satan. And according to Colossians 2 verse 15, we're told Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. You know, Satan is still out there. He's still putting up a fight. But like the guy in the battle who's run out of ammunition, Satan is now shooting blanks. And it's just a matter of time. The only way he can win is through intimidation. Don't let him frighten you. Don't let him cast doubt on your faith. Don't let him conjure up guilt in your heart. Jesus is our hope. He's our peace. He's our righteousness and our protector. James 4 verse 7 gives us a promise that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. You see, Satan's already been defeated and he knows it. All you have to do is stand against him in Jesus' name. You'll win the victory. You'll overcome the wicked one. Well, the second reason the cross is seen as Jesus' moment of glory is in verse 32. Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Here's the second reason why this was his moment of glory. The cross was a divine magnet that Jesus knew would draw the hearts of men out of death and darkness into light and life. Jesus knew the cross was where the broken would find healing and where the sinner would find repentance and where the guilty and bitter would sense love. Jesus knew the cross was the one lighthouse on this stormy sea we call life. Jesus knew that on the cross he would defeat Satan And that he would save the world. And for those two reasons, Jesus said, my moment of glory has come. Verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? I mean, they couldn't comprehend this idea that the Messiah was destined to die. Jesus says, who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And here Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 verse 1 which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. The Jews' reaction to Jesus also was a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And what an indictment. What kind of insanity Causes a man to forfeit the approval of the Almighty to pacify peons and impress idiots. What kind of insanity causes you to do that? You know, there are folks today, perhaps some of you, who believe him but don't confess him. You fear reprisals at work or at home or by friends. You play to the fickleness of men rather than upholding the truth of God. Guys, when the reviews come, (laughs) when the marks come out in heaven, you'll want to be spoken of well in heaven. You'll want to make sure you have the approval of God. Far better to get high marks in heaven than to be spoken of well in hell. I mean, think of the regrets when you're forced to admit that a friendship with the guys was more important to you than friendship with God. How embarrassing it'll be when you have to admit that that spot in the foursome, that invitation to the party, that position in the club, that promotion at work, that membership in the fraternity, that popularity at school mattered more to you than the praise of God. You'll cry. You'll weep when that's revealed. You'll shudder for eternity at your utter stupidity. What insanity loves the praise of men more than the praise of God. Well, then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. Here's another declaration of Jesus' deity Verse 46, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Deny the evidence and ignore the obvious about Jesus and you'll bring judgment on yourself. You'll become your own accuser one day. The chapter closes, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, check this out, he loved them to the end. Now this verse becomes more meaningful when you read the rest of chapter Of this chapter, and then on to the end of chapter 19. Because by that point, you realize what's happened. You realize that Peter, James, and John have slumbered in sleep rather than stand with Jesus in prayer. You realize that Judas has betrayed his master with a kiss. You realize that Peter has denied his Lord three times. Before the rooster had crowed twice, you realize that all 12 disciples by this point had forsaken Jesus and had fled at his arrest. You see, after you realize all of that, that's when you need to go back and you need to read this verse Jesus loved them to the end. After the disciples had got into an argument, who's the greatest among them? <laughs> After they realized that they didn't have a clue as to what Jesus was doing. After they forsake him and let on and on we could go. After they revealed how insensitive they were. And how shallow they were. And how weak their faith truly was. After all of these things. That's when you go back and you read this verse again. Having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. You see, the disciples let him down and they broke his heart. Jesus was forsaken by the very people he came to save. To me, the strongest proof of the deity of Jesus was not his stroll on top of the waters or his miracle with the fish and chips or even busting up Lazarus's funeral. To me... The greatest miracle Jesus performed was when he loved his disciples to the end. That Jesus loved these guys. Even though they failed him. Even though they denied him. Even though they betrayed him. That he loved them anyway. To me that proves his deity. Only God has such a love. 1 Corinthians 13 describes agape love. God's love. Love suffers long and is kind. Does not seek its own is not provoked, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. God's people fail. But God's love for them never fails. Only God has such a love. Only God has a love that never quits, even in the face of human failure and betrayal. And this is the love with which Jesus loved his disciples during this last week. And this is the love with which Jesus loves you every week. Your failures don't dilute his love for you. Jesus still loves his disciples to the end. And for that I'm glad. Verse 2, And supper being ended, Now, note the calendar. This was the night before Jesus was crucified. And this was supper time. This was a special supper, by the way. It was the Passover Seder. At that time, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. you, You see a crescendo building here. Satan has put it into the heart of of Judas he's already made his move. Now Jesus is preparing for the for the final act in the drama. This is dramatic. This is the equivalent of a scriptural drum roll. Blah. And I hear John, the master of ceremonies, introducing Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the divine emissary, the cosmic invader from eternity past to eternity future, sole possessor of the universe. Here he is, Jesus. That's the kind of introduction he gets here. Knowing that the Father had given him all things, all things had been put into his power. Knowing that he was coming from God and going to God. What comes next after that kind of an introduction? How about a few warm-up miracles, Jesus? Let's see a, a couple of wheelchairs get thrown away. Let's see that seeing eye dog get put out of a job. Let's see a couple of corpses raised from the dead. What do you do with an introduction like that? The Father has just placed all things at the Son's disposal. The universe has become his workbench. All things have been given to Jesus. Jesus can now pick any tool he desires to use. His goal is to fix a broken world. So guess what tools he pulls out of the toolbox? A bowl and a towel. Verse 4. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus chooses to change the world through a bowl and a towel. You know, Jerusalem streets are pretty dirty even today. And when you entered a house, you always washed your feet. It was sort of a courtesy. But washing footsies was a degrading job. Only the lowest slaves washed feet. Gentile slaves were the only ones who toweled toes. In fact, it was against rabbinical law to force a Jewish slave to wash someone's feet. Jesus' job now is to fix a fallen world, to change the heart of man. His resources are unlimited. All power has been entrusted into his hands. Now what does he do? He picks up a bowl and a towel and a water basin and he washes the dust off his disciples' feet. What a strange way to change the world. I like how one author interprets this earth-shattering event. He writes, Until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to get on top. And once he had gotten on top, to stay on top or else attempt to get farther up. But this man, already on top, rabbi, teacher, master, God himself, got down on the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. In that one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order. Prior to this moment, the world was a pyramid, and the goal was to climb up the pinnacle of the pyramid. Greatness was measured by the number of people who served under you. But Jesus now flips the pyramid over. Greatness in his kingdom is now measured by the people you serve, not who serve you. Jesus chose to change the world by redefining its concept of greatness. Jesus climbed as low as you can go. He stripped away his right to be served. He took a towel and a bowl. He became a servant. And he washed a bunch of smelly feet. You want to be like Jesus? Washed any feet lately? Verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In other words, no way, Jose. Now when you cross-reference this event with Luke chapter 22, you discover that Jesus performed this foot washing after dinner. And Luke tells us what else was happening after dinner. A rivalry had broken out among the disciples. They were arguing over who was greatest among them. You know, usually feet were washed when guests entered the house. It's now after dinner, and everybody's still got dirty feet. Obviously, none of the disciples felt that they wanted to wash somebody else's feet. They were too good to wash each other's feet. Imagine, right in the midst of this feud of who is greatest, Jesus gets up, he takes the towel and the basin, and he starts to wash his disciples feet it was stunning especially for peter i mean this was so foreign to his ideas of leadership and authority and greatness i mean this action just didn't compute in peter's little mind and so he resisted he said no way lord are you washing my feet and it seems the lord understood for jesus answered and said to him what i am doing You do not understand now, but you will know after this. Jesus knew that this was blowing Peter's mind. He just was having a hard time grasping this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, well, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, well, Lord... You know, if that's the case, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter was not always sensitive to the Lord, but he was always sincere toward the Lord. And Peter is saying, well, if you have to wash my feet in order for me to be part of you, then don't just stop with my feet. Wash my whole body, because I love you, Jesus. And I want to be be in relationship with you. Peter gives all of himself to Jesus. Wash my whole body. Verse ten, Jesus said to him, "He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean." You see, when a person was invited to a special event, he would go down to the public bathhouse and he would take a bath. He he would go through the uh, procedures there. He would sit in the cold water. He would he would then soak and and bathe. And he'd go into the warm water, and then he would come out of the whole thing. He he would be completely clean. But then he would walk to the party, had to walk to the party. And in those days, they wore sandals, these laced up sandals. So by the time he arrived to the party, his feet were dirty. Now he was clean, but his feet were dirty. He didn't need another bath. All he needed was for the street dust to be washed away. And this is the case for a Christian. Hey, come to Jesus and you get a bath. The blood of Jesus cleanses you of all your sin. Past, present, future. Outward sins, inward sins. In Christ, the inner man is as clean as you can get. Inwardly, you're spick and span. The problem, though, is that we still live in this world. And and as a part of this world, we pick up street dust. The outer man has to go through this wicked world and therefore our feet get dirty. We can pick up some attitudes from this world. We can get a sour disposition. We we can mimic some language that we hear on the streets. We can develop some bad habits from from people around us. Worldly associations, sinful surroundings can, can make us dirty. The world's negativism, its materialism can stick to us. Now, we don't need another bath. The inner man has been washed once and for all in the blood of Jesus. But what we do need are regular foot washings. We need times in the Word, times in prayer, times in fellowship with each other where we knock off the influences of this world. This is what it means to wash each other's feet. To get each other thinking about Christ to get each other remembering our identity in Christ and the love Christ has for us and our love for Him. When we affect each other that way, we're essentially washing each other's feet. Now Jesus says to His disciples, You are clean, but not all of you. For He knew who would betray Him. Therefore He said, You are not all clean. So when He had washed their feet, taken His garments and sat down again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And what a memorable example it was. You know, some Christian denominations have taken Jesus' example quite literally. They believe that Jesus gave the church three ordinances to practice. Baptism, communion, and foot washing. Most Christian churches, though, maintain that only baptism and communion were intended to be observed by the church. Here's the test that we use. Was it initiated by Jesus? Was it practiced by the early church? And was it taught in the New Testament letters? Baptism and communion passes all three tests. Foot washing fails on the last two. But even if foot washing was never intended to be ritualized, it certainly should be actualized. For we need to be constantly washing each other's feet, even when there's no towel and bowl available. The world beats us up. The world gets us down. The world defiles us and dirties us up. And when we encourage each other, when we speak words of healing to each other, when we laugh together or cry together, when we refresh each other by acts of kindness, when we remember each other and pray for each other, when we reinforce in each other our identity in Christ when we treat each other with that newfound dignity and respect that we receive as Christians when we build up each other's faith when we do these things in essence we're washing each other's feet when was the last time you washed your spouse's feet we're so worried about what, they, what they're going to do for us What my husband needs to be doing for me, or what my wife needs to be doing for me. When was the last time you did something for them to wash their feet? When was the last time you washed your children's feet? When was the last time, oh my, you washed your boss's feet? Or you washed a coworker's feet? Or you washed a neighbor's feet. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you got to be a foot washer. In verse 16 Jesus says most surely I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things blessed or happy are you if you do them. Wait a minute here. Did Jesus say what I think he said? Did Jesus say that if you want to be happy you need to start washing feet? You got to be kidding me. Well before you reject the idea. Stop and think, has Jesus ever lied to you before? Most of the time, you're miserable and unhappy anyway, so why not give this a try? I mean, what do you got to lose, man? Why don't you wash a few feet? It'll make you happy, trust me. Jesus said it would. I do not speak concerning all of you, for I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled... He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And the scripture he's talking about here is Psalm 41, verse 9. He's quoting David. The complete verse, by the way, it reads, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David originally wrote Psalm 41 in reference to his former friend and counselor, Ahithophel. But John now sees it as prophetic of Judas. Judas. Verse 19, now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. You know, when it's apparent Judas is really a Judas, Jesus is saying, remember, I told you so. Again, his prediction was proof of his deity. He says, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And this is the exact moment that Leonardo da Vinci immortalized in his famous painting, The Last Supper. If you look at that painting, you see that the disciples are, are all around the table and they're sort of looking at each other with these quizzical expressions on their face. Is it me? Is it you? Who, who is he talking about? You know, I think it's a real testimony to the love of Jesus for Judas that the disciples didn't already know who it was that would do this dastardly deed. I mean, Jesus knew from the very beginning that Judas was the one who would betray him. But Jesus never tipped his hand. I mean, if I had been Jesus, I would have always made Judas take the trash out. You know, Judas would be, Judas, somebody needs to clean the toilets. Judas, you know that's your job. You go clean the toilets. It would have been pretty obvious by now, you know, who the betrayer was, you know. Who got all the dirty work. But apparently, Jesus never treated him with spite, never showed the least bit of resentment toward Judas. He just loved him. Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to repent all along the way. He loved him to the end. Verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom. (coughs) Excuse me. One of his disciples Whom Jesus loved. And this was John's humble way of referring to himself. I guess humble way. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. He wanted John to ask Jesus to identify the betrayer. Well then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now the movement described becomes instructive here. It's possible that Jesus and his disciples, they ate dinner at a Roman table. The Roman table was called the triclinium. The word literally means dinner bed. It sat low to the ground and it was U-shaped. The host which of course on this night was Jesus, set at the bottom of the U. There were no chairs, so everyone reclined on pillows. Since most people are right-handed, that means that they would lean back on their left elbow with their head toward the table. John was able to lean against Jesus' chest, which places him in the seat next to Jesus. Peter spoke to John, so he must have been next to John in the second seat from Jesus. Now, Jesus could dip his bread in the bowl with Judas because apparently Judas was sitting in the other seat next to Jesus. In other words, Jesus and Judas were sitting side by side at the table, placing Judas on Jesus' immediate side. This is revealing. Because a person's most intimate friends were usually seated at his right hand and at his left hand. These were the positions of honor. And on this night they were occupied by John and by Judas. He had the position of honor. And in the midst of the meal the host would dip. He would pay tribute. Here's what he would do. He would pay tribute. He would honor the, the special guest by dipping a piece of bread into the sauce together with his friend. And so guest with whom he dips? With Judas. It's sort of a toast of their love and their friendship. So as Jesus is toasting his friendship with Judas, he loved Judas. It's amazing that as he's toasting his friend in Judas's heart, he is plotting Jesus' demise. Recall verse 2, it was Satan who motivated Judas to betray Jesus. Remember, the temple guard, they didn't need Judas's identification. I'm sure they knew Jesus. They'd seen him enough to know who he was. Why did Satan involve Judas? Well, I believe it was because he wanted to hurt Jesus. He used Judas to betray Jesus. Imagine being betrayed by your best friend. Again, that night, Jesus is now treating Judas as an honored guest. His very close friend. Maybe his closest friend among the whole twelve. And yet, Judas is the one that Satan has put in his heart to betray Jesus. What does that do to Jesus? Boy, that hurts. Can you feel that hurt? Can you feel the broken heart he must have experienced? Isn't it true the deepest wounds we incur are always inflicted by the people closest to us? Isn't that that true? Think about it tonight. What if if you discovered that your spouse had betrayed you in such a way? Wanted to kill you. That your best friend had plotted your demise to to put you down, to, to actually take your life. Imagine the hurt. Imagine the pain. And now Jesus is going to the cross to die for this person who has betrayed him? Satan must have thought that if he could use Judas to make Jesus bitter, to make Jesus resentful, to keep Jesus off the cross, that if he used Judas, he could cause Jesus to abandon his mission. That must have been Satan's goal. Satan's goal was to nail... Wasn't to nail Jesus to the cross; it was to keep him off the cross. And yet, Jesus, he loved his disciples to the very end, even Judas. Verse twenty-seven. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, and then Jesus said to him, "What you do, do quickly." But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought. Because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. What ominous words. And it was night, in more ways than one. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. Remember, the cross was Jesus' moment of glory. It was the cross. It was at the cross of Jesus Christ that we see man at his worst, but we also see God at His best. If God is glorified in him, Jesus says, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you. Now this word commandment in the Latin version is the word mandatum or mandate. This is why Thursday of Passion Week is called Monday. Thursday. You ever heard that term? That's mandate, the day of the mandate. It was on this day that Jesus gave a new commandment or a new mandate to his disciples. And here is his new commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, if you've read Leviticus 19 verse 18, you might protest here. Because Moses ordered Israel to love one another. So so how is brotherly love a new commandment? Don't miss what Jesus does here. He takes an old commandment, but he adds five words to it that transform it into a new commandment, a revolutionary new concept. Here's the transforming phrase. As I have loved you. Oh, it's one thing to love someone else, but to love them the way Jesus loves them, oh my. That's a different issue. The Jews were expected to love, but not in the way necessarily that Jesus loved. When you love people to the end, that's loving as Jesus loves. What about that friend who wasn't there when you needed her? Do you still love her? What about the, tri- the child who's grown up now and has betrayed you? Maybe the child that has embarrassed you. Do you still love them? What about the parent who's denied you? Doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Do you still love that parent? What about the spouse who let you down? What about the coworker who refused to stand up for you in the pinch? Have you stopped loving these people? Or do you keep on loving them? Do you love them to the end? Do you follow your master? Have you embraced this new commandment? Verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what? You start loving people this way, I guarantee you, you'll draw some attention. Not many people love like this. Jesus is saying, though, if you love in this way, people will know that you're my disciples, that you're learning from me, because I'm the only one who loves people to the end, and then those who follow me. Yeah, I love this. The identifying mark of a Christian is not his leather-bound Bible or his really cool witness T-shirts or the aluminum fish that he's got on the bumper of his car. What distinguishes a Christian is not even his Bible knowledge, or his correct theology, or his expertise in apologetics. It's not his church involvement, or his acts of service, or his ability to sing. It's not how he walks, or talks, or looks. It's how he loves. Does he love the way Jesus loves? That's how you tell if a person's a Christian. Michael Card writes in his book on John, the only distinguishing mark of the disciples ever given in Scripture is their ability to love. In 200 AD, the church leader, Tertullian, quoted the pagans who had viewed the Christians with astonishment. They said, see how they love one another. That that was the word on the street regarding the Christians. And you know, the distinction hasn't changed They'll know you are a Christian by your love for one another. Well, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And of course, Jesus was speaking of the cross. Church history tells us that Peter was martyred for his faith in Rome in 65 AD. Interestingly, he was sentenced to crucifixion. He did follow Jesus in this same manner. Not at that time, but later. And, and church history says that, that, he, that Peter, when he was sentenced to crucifixion, he considered himself unworthy to be crucified as Jesus had been, and so he had them turn the cross upside down. And so he was crucified on an upside down cross. Jesus predicts that Peter will follow him in death by crucifixion, but that was not what was on Peter's mind at that moment. For Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. When Peter is finally crucified, he'll be full of the Holy Spirit. But on this night, he was full of it, all right. (laughs) But not of the Holy Spirit. He was full of hubris and pride and self-confidence. And that's what got him into trouble. For Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter's headed for a crushing defeat. And yet as with all the disciples, Jesus will love Peter and he will love him to the end.